This is a BMO Smarter Investing Special Edition. On today's episode, Head of Wealth Digitech and President of BMO Investor Line Silvio Storescu and Chief Investment Strategist at BMO Capital Markets Brian Belsky talk about how investors can strengthen their portfolios in the long term. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the BMO Smarter Investing Podcast. I am Silvio Storescu, Head of Wealth Digitech and President of BMO Investor Line. The first quarter of 2023 is now behind us, and it will be yet another quarter with notable events, which will be remembered for years to come. The developments at Silicon Valley Bank, followed by UBS's rescue of Credit Suisse, were reminders of the risks posed by tightening cycles, especially when both the pace and the magnitude of tightening are relatively high. For now, the stress in the United States and Europe appears to be under control. And it seems the overall financial system remains on solid ground, thanks in part to the interventions from uh, both US and Swiss regulators. And look, while we may be nearing the end of this tightening cycle, the full effect of the actions taken by central banks will likely take a few more quarters to play out across the broader economy. This could also mean that investors will continue to navigate markets with a heightened degree of uncertainty and maybe even higher volatility than we've seen so far. And naturally, it's during these periods of higher uncertainty that investors' emotional fortitude is truly tested. These tests come in a form of behavioral risks, which include panic selling, moving to cash, or even day trading frantically. Today, I'm joined by Brian Belsky, who is Chief Investment Strategist for BMO Capital Markets, to discuss how investors can stay grounded and build the fortitude to focus on behaviors which are accretive to long-term investing plans and consequently to portfolio performance. Hello, Brian, and welcome to the podcast. Silvio, thank you so much for having us. We are honored and, and quite blessed and humbled to be on, especially considering all of the voices out there, a lot of stuff going on, and we are happy to be on and hopefully we can provide some answers. Love it, Brian. Thanks for making the time. So let's start off with uh, what could be seen as a hard-hitting question right off the bat. What should investors be focused on to keep their emotions in check and just mitigate these behavioral gaps that we tend to see typically during these periods of uh, market turmoil? Well, it's a great question. And I always like to hearken back to my very first mentor on Wall Street 33 years ago was a gentleman by the name of William O'Neill. And Bill used to say all the time, Brian, don't let anyone ever tell you there's nothing going on in the market because there's always something going on in the market. So now we fast forward 33 years later with the advent of the internet machine and bullet point analysis and quick judgments and all of the types of frantic type news that we are all dealing with. And no wonder we're reactive. And something that you said in the preamble struck me with respect to the velocity and how things have changed so quickly in 2022 in terms of the direction of interest rates, how quickly we forgot. And in 2020, in terms of central banks with respect to how fast they were dropping interest rates and dropping things to zero. And so I think it really speaks to, we gotta take two steps back and normalize things and return to 
kind of normalized levels where we're not as bombastic in terms of the news, not so bombastic in terms of the directions. And for our part, that's where we think we're going, but we just have to kind of go through this transition stage of normalization. And I think in terms of people not reacting, I think you have to stick with your process as an investor, number one. And dare I say, try not to watch TV or try not to react to things on TV because I will tell you that, for lack of a better way to put it, financial news television, television I'm sorry, has kind of become entertainment tonight. And they love to feed the fear. Remember, fear sells, fear sells. And so I think given the heightened sense of frantic opinions out there, I think people are rushing to judgment right now. And I think from a longer term perspective, that's why it's so important to stick with your process. Yeah, I love that, Brian. Like on so many levels and and you put these things into perspective, both the, the pace on the way down relative to the pace we're seeing on the way up. Look, we've talked about this before, Brian. If you look at interest rates over longer periods of time, we're actually at relatively normal levels, right? You know, despite the fact that we got here pretty fast. So, you know, taking a, a balcony view of, of what's been happening and along the entire horizon is super important. You talked about March 2020 and um, an interesting dynamic we saw, especially with self-directed investors. They were seeing that time frame as an opportunity. As a matter of fact, on our platform at BMO Investor Line, we had more buy orders, people buying stocks versus sell orders during that time. Interested in your thoughts on um, there's a textbook view of tune out the noise and stick to your plan. Is there you know, an even broader opportunity here to say, how do you take advantage of the fear sentiment and, and what's happening now, especially if you're a long-term investor? Well, I go back to those early days of COVID and we were all kind of scratching our heads and trying to figure out, number one, how we could survive. Number two, how we could do our jobs. Number three, how we could take care of our families and all of this. And there was a tremendous amount of, of stress and, quite frankly, PTSD that we're all going through. And, oh, by the way, it's complex PTSD. And we're still dealing with that right now today. So let's go back to March of 2020, where if you remember what occurred on March 18th and 19th, that Wednesday and Thursday, and then March 20th was Friday. It was a terrible day. Now, it was a really bad day in the markets across the world. And history shows that when you have a really bad Thursday and even worse Friday, that Saturday and Sunday, I'm sorry, the emotions of investors during the weekends get even more so fervently bearish and scared. And that's exactly what happened. So Given what was going on in the marketplace, given what we were seeing on TV, given given what we were hearing from our institutional clients, which are our primary client, institutions were running scared. They were selling as much as they could. They didn't know what I was understanding. There were comments on, on television and from other banks that were going into the next Great Depression, that GDP was going to be down double digits. Nobody knew. And so we felt with some accord sitting in our condo in Minneapolis all by ourselves trying to figure out what a dial was, a VPN or whatever it's called, that we started writing our report saying, enough's enough. This is the bottom. We thought that stocks were going to rally 50% from the lows. We started to publish the report on Monday, given all of the technology stuff and the compliance things, and people were worried about making that type of a comment when the world essentially was falling apart. We luckily published the report still at the bottom of the markets. Now, again, we say that very humbly because we thought that there's not a lot of fundamentals there. It was all about fear. And so What's occurred is in investors' minds, we remember we remember the bad stuff, and then we go back to that. So we think about 
the financials, and then we think, oh, it's 2007, 2008 again. Or last year when technology companies were going down, oh, we think it's 99, 2000 again. Because we always remember the last time we got punched in the gut. We always remember that. And so we don't think that that's the way to think. We have to kind of stick with our process. And we got to think about how the dynamics of fundamentals and the dynamics of our markets have changed dramatically. Oh, by the way, for the better, especially in financials, but also in technology and the way that we're learning about things and all the information. So it's really easy to go back and think about and remember the, the negative news and the bad news. We would say again, I'm gonna, I'll probably say it five more times during this podcast, stick with your process, be disciplined, don't let fear drive you to make decisions. And typically and historically, investors usually sell at the wrong point and buy at the wrong point. Lastly, uh, one more thing that I'd like to say. Back in March of 2020, I will say this. Back in March of 2020, my institutional clients, which are the big mutual funds, hedge funds around the world, were, as I said previously in passing, very bearish, very bearish, where the wealth people that I was talking to were very bullish, very bullish. And oh, by the way, they were right. They were right. And so again, going back to Bill O'Neill, who was my first mentor on Wall Street, he used to tell me institutions are smart money and retails the, the not so smart money. Uh-uh, uh-uh, uh-uh. It has flip-flopped recently. Because the pressure to perform on the institutional side of things, the pressure to perform and put those numbers, those published numbers in terms of what they're making in their portfolios, that puts a lot of pressure on these portfolio managers to be right in the market. And, and what they do is they make the wrong decisions where wealth clients have a process, they have a discipline, they have an asset allocation. And I, I think that's an important distinction relative to the past. Superb points, Brian, and in particular, just deciphering the signals from the noise and understanding that the noise out there is brought forth by experts, frankly, institutional investors, portfolio managers, who may have different accountability for performance in a different time horizon than a retail investor would. Maybe if we just stick to this view from the balcony and point to some of the data, Brian, like what are you seeing in terms of long-term indicators that would give you more of a, an optimistic view on what's happening now and how this translates for a long-term investor? Well, again, I think a lot of what has occurred the last couple of years, we've never seen before. And I think one of the biggest problems that we have as strategists and quite frankly, investors is that many of, of the banks and strategists and economists are using traditional academic methods to look at whether or not we had a recession or the obsession with calling the recession. And, you know, we we view this as a pretty classic type of market cycle where stocks lead earnings which lead the economy. Stocks lead earnings which lead the economy, meaning markets were down in the US, especially now obviously Canada did a lot better last year in 2022, but the US stock market was down over 25% from the highs, which typically tells you that we're heading into a bear market and or a recession. So whether or not we have a recession in our view is almost a moot point. Doesn't mean that we're not gonna have a recession, doesn't mean that we've already not had a recession, doesn't mean any of that, it just means that I think too many people are focusing too much on macroeconomic variables. And what's really interesting is that employment has held in there very, very well. People that are looking for jobs, they can't find the jobs because there's everyone is basically employed. And it's interesting that the bears or the people that are making these bearish calls actually want unemployment to go up. I, I, I don't understand how people can think like that. 
But again, I'm just a common sense kid born and raised in Minnesota. But the interest rate scenario also is really interesting because as we talked about earlier a little bit in passing that we have not been in a normal interest rate environment, I would say, since the 80s and 90s. And when the Fed started to open the window in 2007 and started with a lot of this quantitative easing and now we're quantitative tightening, we haven't been in a normalized interest rate scenario for 20 plus years. And so, again, I think it's going to take time to get going on this. Now, the Fed, we talked in the very beginning, and your preamble talked about how we're close to the end of the tightening cycle, which it's pretty clear after being very aggressive last year, we're not going to be as aggressive going forward. Signs of inflation from across the board, from supply chains opening up to the service parts of the economy to food, all of these things are beginning to roll over. Not as fast as everybody, a lot of people thought, including ourselves, but they are rolling over nonetheless. What happens is inflation can increase really quickly, and then it takes time to work off. And so now we've been in a tightening cycle, meaning interest rates have gone up now for a year, and it's kind of chiseling away at this inflation. But the key thing is, I think the employment side, especially in the United States with the employment unemployment rate ticking down recently to 3.5%, you know, people are working and they can continue to spend. And remember, two-thirds of the economy in the United States is the consumer. But I think more importantly are the small mid-companies, both private and public in the United States, remain in very good shape fundamentally. And with respect to our view on that, which is something I don't think really gets talked about enough, is that small and medium-sized companies, I think, are in the best position based on the work that we do when we look at things like earnings and cash flow and things like that are the best position that we've seen in 30 years. And so I think that bodes well for a recovery going forward. So I don't think there's any magical data point. I think investors react too much to data points and they need to be kind of more bottoms up investors looking at company fundamentals in terms of the company management, the product, the service, how much money do they make? What are they valued at? Kind of traditional fundamental metrics when looking at companies. Yeah, Brian, one of the things that resonates with me and, and you're consistently addressing it in this comment is use this term of get beyond the lazy math, right? Like learn about the company, do your homework, understand the dynamics of what's happening within that sector with, with that company, and then make your decisions with conviction based on some good insight and research, as opposed to just the macro high-level math and the, the noisy here out there. Look, Brian, one of the best, I'd say probably the most critical part of, uh, of any of our jobs is to stay connected to our clients and understand what's top of mind for them. And in anticipation of us having this conversation, we also asked our BMO Investor Line self-directed clients, what's top of mind for them? And uh, there's a question here, which I think it's a good segue to what you talked about just now. It's a bit of a two-parter, but the question that was posed is, which part of the economic cycle are we in? Is it an expansion or a contraction in your view? And which cyclical or counter-cyclical industries should investors index towards at this point and why? It's a great question. We would say that we're not, we're early cycle. We think that a lot of what happened in 2020, 2021, and 2022 kind of blew up all the, the traditional cycle type of ways of looking at things. In an early cycle area, you want to be in more kind of cyclical areas, like whether or not they're industrials or consumer discretionary or, or things like that. But we also think, too, given, given the scenario, Silvio, that we've been in with respect to very low interest rates, shocker, I don't think we're going back to zero anymore. And that's okay, 
But at the end of the day, we've had such a huge move in growth stocks relative to value. And we think from an allocation basis, looking at equities only, you want to tilt more toward value. Doesn't mean that you don't own the growth stocks. It just means that you're going to kind of be in that sweet spots called GARP, growth at a reasonable price and high quality. So what's high quality? I mean, you take a look at stocks that have very stable earnings with their operating performance, things like return on equity and return on assets that are increasing. What's really interesting about making the high quality argument, so is that many of the high quality stocks that make up the list in America that are the highest of quality are technology names. It's really interesting. So if you think about technology, because we are fearful and we think negative right away, we think about the high flying tech stocks that probably got too inflated in 2021 and or the tech stocks that got us in trouble as a marketplace in 99, 2000. No, in fact, if you take a look at Apple in particular, Apple has more cash on the balance sheet than the country of Canada or Microsoft. Microsoft is an amazing company that has these big giant cash reserve and cash flow. Why I name those two companies are, they're parts of our everyday lives. I call them the consumer staples of technology. We probably all have an iPhone. We probably all use Word on some sort of a internet machine type of thing. And so you want to kind of think more like that. We also want to think from a value perspective, if you look at value stocks, whether or not they're financials or industrials or parts of healthcare, parts of consumer, because we've had such a huge move in growth stocks, it's values time to shine. Doesn't mean, again, that you can't own growth stocks, but this is why you have to be more of a stock picker versus looking at, let's say, broader measures in buying indices. And just to connect the dots, Brian, to another question we have from our clients and, and staying to where you wrapped up now, if you look at what's happened in March in particular with the financial sector, there's been a lot of volatility with bank stocks, underperforming other sectors. Tech's been you know, off to a pretty good month relative to banks. If you look at a financial sector, does it change your opinion on, on how you see this performing, both in the short term and also in the long term? No, it doesn't. So here's some perspective, okay? I know some Canadian clients have a hard time understanding this because there's really five big banks plus another one. And there are 600, there are 600 publicly traded banks in the United States and over 4,200 banks in the United States total. And I think it's really difficult for some Canadians to look at that because and understand that. And actually, that's a good thing. Why is that a good thing? Because we have said in our 11 years at BMO, and not just because we work at BMO, but because we've done the work and we've been doing this now in my 34th year, Canadian banks, okay, Canadian banks are the most excellent stewards of capital in the world, period, period. If you take a look at our own bank, BMO, we're the very first bank, right? And we're the very first bank to pay a dividend. Over 200 years of paying a dividend. There's only been one bank to cut a dividend in over the last 150 years, and it was TD, and the next quarter they paid it again. And we dealt with a lot of these scare and fear tactics back in March, April, May of 2020, when oil was going in the wrong direction. And then, oh, by the way, the price of oil was actually, oil companies technically were paying you to take physical delivery of oil. People forgot that, that was just three years ago. And the word on the street, quote unquote, from institutional accounts, 
was that the Canadian banking sector was going to go into disarray because of the energy sector going to zero, quote unquote. How did that work out? Not very well. Now, recently, we're worried about rising interest rates and growing reserves and the potential slowdown in, in real estate. We've been waiting for the impending doom of Canadian real estate now for 20 years. How'd that work out? Not very well. So I think investors, they, they focus on the fear side of things, especially Canadian banks. Now, with respect to the U.S., in looking at the banking sector, again, a couple bad apples, a couple bad apples. There's always a couple bad apples that ruin the party. I think they ruin the party. Now, from an institutional perspective as well, what happened with Credit Suisse and UBS, the institutional world has been waiting for some sort of a washout to happen in the Swiss banking industry since 2008. A lot of institutional investors, including ourselves, have been kind of waiting for this. Now it happened. Now, I think there's three things that are going to occur going forward to the U.S. financial sector. Number one, the inverse of what happened in 2009, 10, 11. So what's the inverse? The inverse is following the credit crisis and the great financial crisis, investors around the world, but especially US investors, both private investors, commercial investors, institutional investors, they moved away from the big banks because of all the drama and the PTSD and moved to small banks. The absolute opposite is gonna happen this time around. And it's going to trickle into point number two. Point number two is, I believe that there's the likelihood of increased consolidation within the small mid-cap banks and regional banks, both private and public, is going to occur. And then number three, this notion of regulation. There's probably going to be more pointed regulation toward these small banks. Not all banks, not all financials. When you hear regulation in the press, they're going to, you know, they talk about the doom and gloom of financials not going to happen because we need the big banks to continue on the economic side of things to keep businesses going. And that's why small mid companies are so important because of the commercial banking side of things in the United States. But I do think those three things are going to occur going forward, which, oh, by the way, benefits our theme that we've been talking about for financials for the last five years. And that theme is scale, 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 scale. So money center banks in the United States, Canadian banks, asset managers, and broker dealers, those businesses are scalable. They're scalable businesses. So that fits well into what we've already been kind of positioned for. Yeah, and, and, and quality, Brian, which you touched on before, in terms of understanding the balance sheet management of these companies, financials included, duration risk management in terms of financials, right? Just understanding you know, how uh, management teams are actually tackling these super important topics. Look, let's pick up uh, a final question from our clients. And this actually came up, Brian, a couple of weeks ago. And uh, it's important to share that context because rates, the two-year rate was actually hovering <laughs> close to 5% a couple of weeks ago. Now it's under four. But the question was, you know, could investors just park their cash and earn, you know, this call it either a two-year rate or one-year rate in the short term and just wait for better opportunities in the stock market? Interested in your thoughts on that? Sure, they could. Look what's happened, as you said, with interest rates and the bond market rallying here recently. The bond market's basically telling you that the Fed's going to go too far. So now the, the bond markets are going to do it and do it themselves and rally and make rates go lower. So I think anytime you try to time the market, whether or not you're trying to time with respect to the fixed income portion of your portfolio or the equity portion of your portfolio, it's always very dangerous to do that. And so we would say continue with your process. What's your longer term vision? Should you have parts of your asset allocation? With respect to cash, if that's what fits your asset allocation, that's what fits your allocation. But anytime you're trying to kind of pick the direction 
of things instead of kind of looking back in terms of what these assets mean to your overall mix, uh, you usually get in trouble. Yeah, good point. Especially, I mean, if you're a long-term investor, don't let the short-term noise uh, you know, impact, impact how you think about this. Look, Brian, we know this. <laughs> it's easier in theory, right? Is that emotional fortitude to be able to make decisions now and in some cases even go against the noise in the market uh, that pays off in the longer term. Maybe another another point on rates here. In the context of what we hear from the Fed is higher rates for longer, and uh, that leads to higher cost of capital, higher expectations on equity premium. You're thinking on uh, current levels of earnings multiples and also dividends uh, relative to what we're seeing with the, uh, let's call it the risk-free rates. Well, higher for longer is going to be higher for longer, anything higher than zero. But you know, at the end of the day, as we kind of Going back into this whole notion of normalizing, you know, ten-year treasuries are going to be in a tight range, either between three and four or four and five, which is very different than what we've seen the last couple of years. But the the ten-year, I mean, the average ten-year treasury is just over five percent since uh, the great financial crisis, and since I'm sorry, since 1990. But historically, it's seven percent going back to the 1930s, and so we're not even there yet. That's kind of number one in terms of multiples. I think that don't look at a multiple whenever you're trying to trying to look at the market because the PE ratio is actually not a good predictor of future performance it's a terrible predictor of future performance so whether or not it's 17 18 19 times there's a bare argument out there that says that the average multiple out of a recession is 15 and we need to go to $200 earnings and that gives you 3000 again you mentioned it in passing but that's just lazy math and I don't agree with that at all because it's just too simple, We've it, too easy. If there's one thing that we've learned about this business the last, last few years, this isn't an easy business and this has been really difficult. It's increasingly difficult, so you can't make it easy on the downside. But I do think that from a, from a fundamental perspective, how we're going to lead this higher is, is that it's back to bare bones investing. We have the best companies in the world right here in North America and the best franchises and the best management teams. And so really focus on, on the stability of earnings when looking at those assets and don't try to get too hung up on what the multiple is, what you're going to pay for that, because you may want to pay a little bit higher multiple for a company that is able to deliver earnings over the long term. Yeah, with that understanding, right, that you've been able to unpack, get beyond that lazy math and understand the nuances for that sector, for that company as well. Research, super important. Brian, let's wrap it up. But uh, we saved the toughest question for the very end here. So if there is one final thought, and we know how tough it is to bring it in and be sustained with just one final thought, if there's one that you'd share for our clients and investors for the remainder of 2023 and beyond, what would that be? Turn off the television. No, just kidding. Focus on this. It's okay. This is a podcast, right? (laughs) (laughs) Always listen to this podcast because it's amazing. (laughs) You know, I think that the era of dividend growth and income investing, the era of stock picking is back. We're very blessed in Canada to have lineage from the UK, especially because we are great dividend investors in Canada. In the United States, we're cowboys down here. Our payout ratios are much lower, but Canada has always been an amazing dividend growth investor and investor base. The US is getting better. So if you can combine value, growth at a reasonable price, quality, and equity income, I think that you will be purchasing and owning fantastic companies that are able to put forward those numbers, and it will actually dilute your risk a lot. 
Love it. Brian, as always, I really appreciate you taking the time today, but thank you for just the grounding, especially in, in times like this, right, where there's a lot of noise out there. You come with optimism, not naive optimism, but grounded, and you get beyond the lazy math. And uh, I find that super helpful. I trust our listeners, our investors have also found value in this conversation. And uh, thank you again for taking the time to connect today. And also many thanks to our listeners for joining us today and for uh, subscribing to our podcast. Thanks for listening to BMO Smarter Investing, a podcast brought to you by BMO Investor Line. We are here to empower Canadians to invest smarter. For more information on how you can start investing today, visit bmo.com slash online investing. And be sure to subscribe to this show to get the latest episodes wherever you listen to podcasts.